Hello and welcome to Debating Metal, the podcast where we discuss and dissect the hard rock and heavy metal bands we all know and love. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, a Dean of Metal, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Kay. Today, we're back with episode 48, part two of Thrash Metal, The Big Four and More. In this episode, we explore the second wave of thrash metal and how the scene entered the next decade and then the next millennium. Yeah, today we're going to talk about the second wave of the thrash bands that followed the Big Four's footsteps and how the 90s changed everything for thrash. We're also going to discuss where the Big Four would go with their music during this time. We're also bringing you another Big Four with our choice of non-Big Four thrash albums. So stick around to the end of the episode to hear what albums we chose. Also, be sure to check out last episode to hear which Big Four, Big Four thrash albums we chose. And as always, we bring you Rusty Metal and Freshly Forged. Rusty Metal is where I dive into the archives and pick an album that I think is worth giving another spin to. And Freshly Forged is where Chris recommends a new release he thinks you should check out. All right, so if you missed our last episode or any of the previous ones, make sure you click on subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast platform and get our latest episode delivered to your fingertips every Friday and you'll never miss another episode. We also want to read your opinions on these or any of our other topics, so if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or message us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. And be sure to check out our social media as Kenneth Dean will post a video detailing more of his Rusty Metal pick. So now we've dispensed with the pleasantries. I believe there's a bit of celebrating in order? Yes, that is because one year ago, January 27th, or about one year ago, January 27th, we debuted our premiere episode of Debating Metal. So it's been quite a long journey to get to where we're at now. We haven't done 52 episodes, but we've done 48, today's number 48, and it's been a year. I mean, it's been a crazy year. We went, we did this through a pandemic and, you know, we were first doing this face-to-face and then we ended up doing it remotely and we had all sorts of different kinds of crazy trouble trying to get some software or get it to sound right, all crazy things to get to this point. And I think it's been a really cool and interesting journey for this past year it's been a lot of fun uh, i've i've surprised because i always thought you know i knew so much about metal but there's always so much more to learn in any capacity uh but but certainly for the things that we love and i've really enjoyed learning more about these bands and the crossovers you know like this guy was in this band and then he moved over to this band so there's there's all this this network within and it's just very interesting to learn all this stuff and i i hope you know you listeners have enjoyed the journey with us that's that's the six degrees of separation of Tony Iommi. <laughs> um, yeah, I I really do hope that the listeners have enjoyed uh, this this journey that we've been on, and and I think it's really cool. I I can't believe it's been a year already, and talking about learning about new metal. I mean, you have taught me so much about metal that I knew existed, but I had never really paid attention to, and it's it's definitely something where I, I didn't think I was going to like it, but you know once I listened to it and understood it a little bit more, I definitely appreciated it a lot more. So I thank you for that. Oh, and and likewise, um, you know I've always been more on the the heavy side of things, and I've had my eyes open to some of the bands that I I never really give a chance to. I mean, I went to concerts with you that uh, you know 
I didn't really care for the band before and actually learned to really like them. And, and uh, you know, I hope we could do that again this next year. That would be uh, great if, if concerts could start again. If we could get that back, that would be great. Well, that brings us to our rusty metal pick for this week. And this week, I'm picking a rusty metal from one of the big four. And it is Anthrax with their Armed and Dangerous EP that came out in 1985. It was released on Megaforce Records. It was recorded at Pyramid Studios in Ithaca, New York. And it was produced by Carl Kennedy and Anthrax. Now, the cool thing about the... Uh, there's a little tidbit I just learned this week um, from listening to a podcast with with uh, Chris Jericho. He was doing a classic album clash with Anthrax's Spreading the Disease versus Among the Living. And he actually had Charlie and Scott on the show along with Heavy Trunk. And Charlie mentioned that the reason that they ended up at Pyramid Studios was because the studio that they were supposed to record at, which I think they recorded Fistful on, was going through some renovations and they had changed out their board and they were months away from being able to get somebody in to record. So when Anthrax went up upstate New York, they were like, hey, you know, we're here and like, hey, we don't have a board for you. So they, they felt, well, there's nothing that they could do. They didn't want to postpone recording the album. So they went ahead and looked around for studios and they came across Pyramid and that's how they got introduced to Carl Kennedy and then Carl Kennedy worked out a uh, working. He ended up with a working relationship with Johnny Z with Megaforce, and a lot of the early thrash albums from Anthrax and Testament and Overkill were all recorded there. So that's pretty cool. Little tidbit. Interesting. All right. So the EP itself was a, a five song EP that came out um, to basically introduce the fans to two new members, Joe Belladonna, as it was listed on the back of the album and Frank Bello. The album was released eight months prior to Anthrax's second album, Spreading the Disease, and it contains two new songs, Armed and Dangerous, of course, and Raise Hell. Raise Hell did not appear anywhere else, and I don't think they've ever played it live. Uh, so that's that's pretty interesting. Those are the first recordings that had Joey and Frankie on it. And oddly enough, Armed and Dangerous was played during the Fistful of Metal tour with Neil Turbin on vocals. And that's kind of why Charlie and Scott are not really big fans of the song Armed and Dangerous because there was a lot of turmoil with the band and they didn't really uh, have many good memories. So when they think about it, they think more about Neil singing it than they, than they do Joey, which is kind of strange because Joey put the definitive version out there, so it's kind of strange for that. But anyway... Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the version of Armed and Dangerous that appears on Spreading the Disease is the same song, it's just remixed. And to me, they, I mean, they sound completely different. Uh, they cut out the, the, the fading intro, uh, the not a, the clean guitar intro, they fade that out, comp- uh, excuse me, they cut that out completely. And just the sound of it is completely different. I actually like the sound of the EP version much better than I do of the album version. The EP also contains a cover of the Sex Pistols' Anarchy in the UK and quote-unquote live versions of Metal Thrashing Mad and Raise Hell, which I believe they're more like live in the studio, like you know one, a one-cut thing, uh, and that's why they called it live. Uh, but they're basically studio recordings. And I don't normally, or we, you and I both, don't normally mention reissues, but this one has a really 
interesting case to it. It was reissued in 1992, and I think it was reissued either right before or right after they fired Joey. And it, which is interesting because this is an album celebrating the the introduction of Joey, and it, and it was reissued either the same year or right before they fired Joey. Um, hmm. But the reissue ended up including uh, the the single for Soldiers of Metal, which was Soldiers of Metal and Howling Furies. And so, so fans ended up getting the, uh, a digital copy basically of the first Anthrax single that came out. So it's a pretty cool EP. Um, I believe it's still available out there. Uh, I know it's on Spotify, so you can still get it. Um, but I have the original Megaforce version that came out in 1985. So that's pretty cool. Um, watch this week for me to kind of point out a few more details on the album, uh, on social media. So if you get a chance, pick it up. It's a cool, cool album. What do you got for Freshly Forged this week? All right, so I picked one that I've I've been trying to kind of figure out that since the beginning of the year. <laughs> and and the reason being is I didn't realize it was delayed from its original release date. So this is a Michael Shanker group, After the Rain. It's, it's a single from their new album that's not out yet, and that's Immortal. So we've still got a couple days for that to come out. So I, I believe it's the 29th or the 27th. Um, sorry about that. But... Um, but basically, I I've always been kind of one of these guys that like like Michael Shanker a lot. But there's so much like there's no consistency in each album, you know, from one to the next. But what what I always enjoy about him is obviously his guitar playing. It's amazing. Um, so I gave this this track a a try, and I was not disappointed. I I honestly really enjoyed it. Um, it's got Michael Voss on lead vocals and it just meshes with the, the style so well. It, it Michael's playing is so emotive on this song and I, I just really, really enjoyed it. So definitely check that out and be on the lookout for this new album. I was, I, I was very pleasantly surprised and I, th- I think you will be too. That sounds really cool. Um, I haven't heard it yet and, and I'm, I'll, I'll probably listen to it sometime this week. Is it a metal song? It's it's kind of metal. It's it's almost um, it's almost in the vein of of some of the early UFO stuff, which is very cool. Okay. Um, so it's more of the the you know the genre that inspired metal, I would say. But you know, Michael's intertwined with metal in that way. So no, the reason I ask because you know he d- exactly like you just mentioned he's intertwined with metal. The early Michael Schenker stuff was more hard rock. Um, mm-hmm. Even I would say you know in the vein of of Rainbow or or White Snake, that kind of rock. And and this it does feel very White Snake in a way. Okay, yeah. so maybe a, a little bluesy, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, so so and that was just I'm just kind of just curious because you know some of the stuff that he's done recently you know with the um the temple of rock is more more metal than it is you know uh you know like rainbowish rock but not metal like nothing hardcore he's never been you know like that but it's interesting because he he does you know run the gamut of the different sounds that that he can create with that guitar he he can he crosses over so many genres so, but it's and cool. he's been such an inspiration to so many musicians. It's hard not to at least give each of his releases a try, in my opinion. Oh, exactly, for sure. 
All right. Well, that brings us to our main topic, which is part two of thrash metal, the big four and more. And this week, we're kind of going to, you know, we're not going to discuss much of the big four. That'll probably come a little bit later in the episode. But we're going to talk about the bands that kind of came out as the scene began to grow. There was the Bay Area thrash scene. There was a couple bands that, that started to really you know, make waves in, in New York and in the New Jersey area. So we're going to talk about those bands and then we're going to talk about how everything kind of just, you know, flowed into the nineties and, and, and the things that the, the bands had to overcome at the, at the turn of the decade. So with that said, let's talk about some of these early bands that, that started up right after Metallica and, and, and Slayer. All right. So the first one that we want to talk about is, is actually two bands essentially, and, but but that one rise or you know kind of rose out of the ashes of the first one, and that was Hellhammer and Celtic Frost. Now Hellhammer started in 1982, but called it quits by 1984. But immediately after, within three months, Celtic Frost started up, uh, and that was from 1984 to 1987. And then again from 1988 to 1993, and then from 2001 to 2008. But they're they're a band from Switzerland, so a, a very different take on, you know, the the genre and kind of from a from a different perspective because they're from a different part of the world. Um, in 1983, they released Death Fiend, and then following that, they released their Triumph of Death demo. Now, Death Fiend had very very little circulation. It was mostly among their friends, so it wasn't a huge you know release in that part of the world um but triumph of death had a lot more circulation and actually had all of the mix you know the songs from death fiend so there was there was both out there uh, so tape traders really started you know circulating this music satanic rights their third demo followed that in the same thing it was being spread around all over so a lot of the early thrash bands had their hands on this as well then they finally released their their first re- actual release, which was Apocalyptic Raids, um, and it was you know first and last, but it had a huge impact on bands like Sepultura, Napalm Death, and even even like I said, the Big Four. I mean, this thing was monumental, and it really impacted the whole black metal scene. I I had heard Tom G. Warrior as as I was. Uh, familiar with him back in the 80s um, before he changed his name to what is normally just Tom G. Fisher, Thomas Gabriel. Um, he he was always mentioning a little bit about, you know, in interviews that you would get in the magazines, he mentioned a little bit about Hellhammer. I was not familiar at all with Hellhammer back in the day. So as a, as a Celtic Frost fan, I you know, by association in reading the interviews, I heard about Hellhammer. It wasn't until 1990 or, um, was it 90 or maybe even 92, somewhere around there, that early, the early nineties period where they actually reissued apocalyptic raids on CD and it was, it had quote unquote major distribution. So it, it, and I, I listened to it and, it's rough as far as, you know, it's like a demo recording. It's not the best. Um, but you can see how they almost, I mean, it's like an, a really an early version of Celtic Cross, which is what it is. And you can see that Thomas 
was looking to do make some changes and you saw that is what developed into Celtic Frost. So I, I'm I'm I heard some of the stuff. Some of the stuff didn't impress me, some of the stuff was pretty cool. So Yeah, it's it's one of those things that they were establishing a new genre in a way. They weren't technically part of it because the the black metal scene would take on a lot of stuff from these guys as well as Venom, which we mentioned in the last episode. The look especially because they wore the corpse paint and you know had that had that attitude where bands that would you know follow like Mayhem and and Bathory and a lot of these other guys they would they would directly reference this. So they kind of inadvertently started a whole another movement. But then they followed things up with they released two EPs in 1984 and 1985, and this is this is Celtic Frost we're talking about at this point, and that's Morbid Tales and Emperor's Return. Then in 1985 they released what was a really influential album, and that's To Megatherian. Um, at this point, Celtic Frost had really established themselves as a, you know, th- like one of the premier bands in the black metal and death metal scene and really you know shifted away from thrash so this was this was the only album that they had that was really thrashy everything else would kind of go in a different direction but uh it is a huge influence on the thrash scene as well morbid tales and emperor's return those two eps are in my collection i love those those the songs on there outstanding the recording is great the it, it's clear um the drums are are right there in your face every everything's right in your face i mean you hear the guitars clear you hear the bass clear i mean mind you there's only three instruments and you hear the drums clear as day and the, the vocals you know there's nothing it's a it's one almost like a perfect mix when you when you really sit down and listen to it so it's really good they have Songs on there, Morbid Tales, Circle of the Tyrants, Procreation of the Wicked. I mean, these are influential songs on on many different genres of of metal. And I was really into it. Then when Tomegatherion comes out, they re-recorded Circle of the Tyrants and added some more elements to the songs. Still thrashy, but you could see that they were heading in a different direction. Um, For sure. And what the different direction became, uh, they actually dubbed it avant-garde metal and their next album after to megatherion was into the pandemonium and that record was all over the place as far as it was the way tom likes to put it it, it, he, he to him all the albums and all the music that he makes is art i mean most of these guys know that the music is art but for him it's like literally painting artwork and he has all these different brush strokes that he uses with the different instruments and the different sounds that he uses. It's, it's pretty, pretty elaborate stuff that he has created. And it's really cool. Into the Pandemonium, though, it's kind of weird because even though he does that, they did a cover of a new wave band called Wall of Voodoo. They did a cover of Mexican Radio on there, which I love that version. And it's just it's just so weird how it is... This a cover of a new wave song, metalized, but then you have this avant-garde kind of music throughout the rest of the album. It's, it's very strange, very strange. But influential, they are huge in terms of influence in black metal and thrash metal and extreme metal. You know, from from 
the uh, Norwegian Swedish area. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're one of those bands that that they don't follow the trends; they start the trends. Exactly, and and that's that's one thing that's very interesting about Celtic Frost. So if you're not very familiar with them, definitely check them out. It's it's funny. At one point, they even kind of turned glam. And yeah, they they don't want to talk about that. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> something that it, they don't reprint those albums. So <laughs> they were bad. They were bad. Yeah. I actually got to I got to see them open for Anthrax in 1987, and that was the second concert I had ever gone to in when I moved to Miami. So it was really really cool. Uh, I have nice. I, I have a few pictures left over from there. So I, that was a good show. I liked it. All right, so the next band we're going to talk about is Metal Church. Uh, 1984, they released Metal Church. This is another band from San Francisco area, so another Bay Area. Uh, so we've got, you know, more of a new wave of British heavy metal sound in their music, especially with the vocals. Um, while it is heavily thrash, it it there's there's something more leaning towards the heavy metal side of things. It wasn't until a little bit later in their career that they really, really, truly delved into thrash. Um, so 1986, you got The Dark. Um, this is the last album to feature David Wayne until the band's reunion with him in 1998. So there's still heavy elements of power metal, traditional heavy metal in here. I really, really like Metal Church. I got their first album... It's really good. I love a lot of the songs on there. I still listen to it to this day. They definitely, you know, they were influenced in terms of thrash. You can hear it, you know, but it's it, very similar to how Metallica wasn't always thrash on every song on the album. Mm-hmm. That's the way Metal Church approached their album. You know, they they had a ton of thrash elements, but they had a lot of, a, a ton of, just straight hard metal stuff. And, and that's what made them good. I, lo- I loved them when they first came out. That first album was amazing. The Dark comes out and it, it kind of continues in that same very eclectic way that Metallica was where they just, they didn't, you know, conform to the the idea of what's supposed to be thrash metal. And, I, and that's what I really enjoyed about it. The sound changed. You could see that there was an improvement because the original Metal Church album was released independently, and then it was re-released by Elektra when they got picked up by by Elektra. So the Dark was they threw some money into it, and you could see that it had a little bit slicker production on it, and mm-hmm. that may have taken away a little bit of the hard edge on it, but they but it still came across in the songs. So that was the cool thing. Yes, second uh, last album, excuse me to feature David Wayne, they came out with Blessing in Disguise in 1989. And I liked that album. Uh, I think Mike Howe is the singer and he's actually the current singer. He came back after almost uh, 15 years away from, from the band. He came back and joined the band as a lead singer and they rededicated themselves to really trying to reestablish Metal Church as, as a, as a working band. Unfortunately, now the pandemic hit, so nobody's working. But Blessing in Disguise is a, is a really interesting album because it, it kind of expands on that eclecticness, yet tries to remain really, really heavy. 
Um, so there's a lot of, here's our favorite term, ebbs and flows, but the ebbs and flows are within the songs. You know, the songs are not straight, hard, beginning to end every song. There's, you know, especially like the, the song Badlands is, is my favorite song in that album. Really, really up and down in terms of, you know, what to expect out of a metal song. So Metal Church is definitely one of my favorite thrash bands. Yeah, I mean, to me, when I'm listening to this album, Mike Howe brings in some more actually like Rob Halford-esque vocals. Um, the drum sound is much drier, which is more in tune of what the other thrash bands were doing. Uh, whereas before they had, they were a bit more explosive, almost like Def Leppard kind of drumming sound. Um, so th- there, there's just, there's more to this that, that feels like thrash. Like they've, they've stepped a little further away from the, the heavy metal scene and more towards thrash. And then the following album, Human Factor, 1991, um, to me, like they fully delved into the thrash thing. This almost sounds like the recording style of spreading the disease. I I like uh, the Human Factor. It's it's kind of a weird um, album because it's very in your face. It's a it's a very raw sounding album. It's got good production, but yet at the same time, it it, man, it maintains a rawness about it that's really cool. But the way that they approached the mix as far as the vocals were concerned, the vocals are very, very in-your-face. And the just the way that Mike Howe sings the songs, he's telling a very personal story on several of the songs. Like, you know, when you think about the human factor itself, that song and the song... What's the other one that's on there? Date with Poverty. Those two songs, I mean, he's telling a very specific story and he's literally like talking to you. Even though he's singing, he's kind of talking to you at the same time. And so it's very interesting. You know, the human factor is about the the explosion of sampling and electronic music in, in music in general. And Date with Poverty is just is just about trying to the struggle of everyday life, and it's 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 so weird because it, there's it, it he's not really it's it's hard to say he's he's not singing but yet he's singing you know because he's telling you that story, and I I that's what attracts me to that album I like it a lot, so it's a, it's a very unique album. Yeah, it was very good. I I actually really enjoyed that, and I enjoyed the following one, Hanging in the Balance, uh, came out in 1993. To me. They actually, after stepping fully into thrash, they stepped a little bit back out of it and went more towards heavy metal again with with this album. Uh, there's there's a lot of similarities because his voice is very Rob Halford sounding. He has a lot of power. He has the ability to to you know explore his range, and th- it really reminds me a lot of ways of Screaming for Vengeance. But I really enjoyed listening to this one. I I, I never got into Hanging in the Balance. Only because at that time, a couple of different factors. Their record sales and their promotional push were almost non-existent. They were on, for Human Factor, if I'm not mistaken, they got signed to Epic Records. And that was the only release that came out on Epic Records. So they got dropped right after the album came out. So now they had to find their own, a new record company for Hanging in the Balance. And so it came out, but really to no fanfare. There was not a lot of promotional push. And me personally... Terrible album cover. <laughs> oh, I know. It's just... God, what is that? 
Um, but for me personally, I was also, uh, I had just gotten married a year prior to that. And, and, uh, I had, hurricane Andrew had hit in 1992. So in 93, I'm still trying to find an apartment and I'm living, I had to move back home with my dog and my wife at the time. Uh, so it, there was a lot of turmoil in my life personally. So I, I just kind of lost touch with that particular album and that band. And so I never really listened to that album whatsoever. Honestly, in my opinion, this might be a good uh, album for your rusty metal pick because I think you should definitely give it a second chance. I, I really enjoyed listening to this one today. Um, so I, I kind of tried to catch up on some of their stuff as, as I was listening in preparation for this, and I was glad I did. Oh, I'll definitely check that out. And All right. Props, so unfortunately, I'm sorry. Before okay. we go on, props to to uh, the drummer Kirk Arrington. He's a badass. <laughs> I mean, the, oh, yeah, the stuff the stuff that he does on their first album is incredible. Especially the the Metal Church song. I love that song because he is everywhere on that song. So props to him. So unfortunately, that was the last release that they put out until they reestablished themselves in 1998. They broke up uh, in 1996. So. Um, that's that was kind of the end of the that era for them but we'll kind of discuss more of where they were in the uh, 2000s uh, on our next episode um so the next band that we want to go over is creator and a little bit different as well not from america this is this is the german metal scene uh creator in germany is known as one of the big four of german thrash in fact they're basically the metallica of that region so they have a huge following in that part of the world, and that's why they often didn't come to America and later on in their career because it just wasn't worth it for them. They were they were headlining arenas. They were you know doing the same thing that uh, other bands were doing in other parts of the world. Like they were like like uh, Iron Maiden basically in in Germany and and in Europe. So. They kind of stayed over there for a while and just only recently decided to start touring the U.S. again. But in 1985, they released uh, Endless Pain. And that was a lot of elements of black metal. It, they hadn't really fully established their sound at that point. But um, they were, you know, they were more influenced by Merciful Fate, Bathory, Venom, you know, the music that was, that was big in that part of the world. They weren't really being influenced by the big four in a way they were getting the same influences as the big four and putting out their music uh but it wasn't till pleasure to kill that like really established them like they were they were highly influenced uh or they highly influenced death metal bands and the extreme metal bands that would follow so this was kind of where they really hit their 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 stride i'm not really familiar with creator that much I saw so many ads in the magazines that I was reading when I was a kid about Creator, and I always wanted to go get them. But in reality, I didn't see them that often because they were imports. Um, they were not, you know, the albums were imports. So I didn't really get, you know, unless I was specifically looking for it, I may not have seen it. I, I probably, you know, flipped through the Kiss section and then stopped there, <laughs> you know, when, yeah. at the record store. You know, when I moved to Miami um, in 87, I still would, would go out and get magazines and stuff like that. And I would see, like in 1990, I saw all the ads for Coma of Souls because there was a big push on that one, you know. And so there was 
they were, you know, the record company noise was really behind that. So they were really trying to make, break the ban internationally. Um, and that's, and that was tough for noise because even though they got, you know, noise did do a lot internationally, they weren't a big uh, label. So they didn't, they didn't have a tremendous amount of money and input into all these, into all this promotion that they would do, but they really pushed coma souls. Unfortunately, I never got into listening to any of it. I actually, the first time I think I heard creator was probably last year when we first started the uh, podcast. Well, yeah, it, it's not a surprise that you really didn't hear them because because honestly, they didn't break America until 1989 with extreme aggression. Um, that that was kind of the the problem with with you know the European bands was they they really had to be circulated by tape traders before that um, until they started really being released officially in the U.S. And by but like as we've talked about, by the time the 90s were hitting, uh, thrash was kind of experiencing a change in, in the genre. So so by that time, it was kind of a, a moot point almost. So they're, they never really quite reached the heights that honestly I feel they should have. And, and, but, but they did still have a huge following in Europe. Um, but like you said, Coma of Souls was a huge album. For them, it was, it was you know, a lot of people consider it their best album. Um, even though Pleasure to Kill and, uh, and Endless Pain are also really huge landmarks, Pleasure to Kill is often considered one of like the greatest thrash albums of all time in the world because of how much influence it had on so many uh, different bands that it's cited as as their biggest influence um but but Coma of Souls was just huge and it was that polished album that that uh I guess people were expecting you know the progression like like when you reach the black album you know it's that it's that sign of polish and maturity um, but the band really changed for the next four albums and they, they kind of followed the, the, the trend of what everyone else was doing in the world. And that was, you know, kind of deterring away from thrash metal with renewal cause for conflict outcast and Enderama. They explored groove metal, industrial Gothic. And for me, I, they lost me. Um, I was a huge fan of them before that. And they just, they lost me with those albums. And then when they returned in 2000 with Violent Revolution, they they went back on the path of thrash. But, you know, that's that's really for the next episode. We're going to talk more about that. Um, but what what I see here is is another band kind of following that trend of not not necessarily say follow the trend, but exploring things and trying to find their way in a different musical world. And I think that's, that's something that I'm, I'm noticing is more is there's some of these bands, they're not really trying to follow the, the trends, but you can't help, but have it seep into your system. You know, the, the stuff that was going on, the attitudes, the, the politics of the time, it all affects the music. And this is another band that was experiencing that. Yeah, it, it it's unfortunate because what happens is, you know, as we referenced last week, you know, managers get involved, record companies get involved, and they tell them, hey, man, this is the new way. You got to do this or you're going to be, you know, left behind. And, and it gets into your head as, a, as an artist, as a musician. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you say to yourself, 
is this the way? Is what we are doing working? And if they if they believe in themselves that it it's not, then they're going to go ahead and make that adjustment. And it's unfortunate because there are bands out there that have succumbed to that, and some of them succeeded to get their, their, themselves out of it. You know, Kiss is a, is the biggest example in the rock metal world of a band that followed so many trends and and in for being a band that set the standard in those first four years of their existence to, to literally like a, a, a light switch, they just flipped and became, uh, you know, so many people called them a disco band and they, they weren't a disco band. They were still a rock band, but they were, they had a disco song. And then, you know, then they come out, not even disco. They just come out with something like soft rock, you know, and, and it's just like, my God, what are you doing? And then they said, Oh, well now we got to get back to it. You know, this mm-hmm. is the same kind of thing that befell creator and and befell. I mean, for for the most part, that's what befell Metallica, you know, in the in the '90s. And so it's it's one of those things where it's like it's almost like you don't believe in yourself completely. And it's weird because for Metallica, you know, you know what 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 they came up with, and it's like, how do you not believe in yourself? Or is it is it something that you just you feel that you have to follow the trend? And creators. Uh, perspective, you know, they were trying to do anything and everything to make it in America. You know, you've got two records that, yes, it was released by Noise, but in America, there was it was actually pushed by Epic, and that's why there were so many ads because Epic was putting money behind it. Um, Epic is trying to break this band. I mean, they signed them to the United States contract, so they like, you know, we want to try and break this band, but it was the end of the eighties and the beginning of the nineties. And it was, it was turmoil because Epic themselves were way deep in the whole grunge scene in, in Seattle. So there was a lot of, it had to be a lot of uh, push and pull when it came to the styles of music that was, that was getting promoted. For sure. And that, I mean, that's going to carry over into a lot of the conversation that we're going to be talking about is that the, the scene that was happening, uh, that it, it, there's just, there was no way to avoid it being part of that world. Mm -hmm. So moving on to the next band, uh, one of the biggest bands in thrash that I think everybody knows is Exodus. Um, 1985 bonded by blood is considered one of the landmark thrash albums. Uh, this is the only album with Paul Bailoff on vocals. Uh, but Another California band. Um, this is this is something huge, but a band that never really met the heights of it again. Kirk Hammett left Exodus to join Metallica, yes, it, he did. and it was it was his band that he started. And that's not to say that he didn't believe in Exodus, um, because you can always you could tell that Kirk had a big influence on Exodus, and and it, it was one of those things where it's like, all right. They're not signed yet because they weren't. And so he got a call from Metallica and said, hey, come join our band. Actually, it wasn't even come join our band. Can you come out here and record an album with us? Oh, and by the way, we're going on tour. So, yeah, you're in the band now. And <laughs> <laughs> so the the thing the thing about Exodus, it, it's what I've kind of never got into with Exodus was – they 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 kind of like they weren't as 
good, I, I guess you could say, to, in, in my opinion, which is kind of weird when, I'm, when, I, when I finish a sentence, when you, when you think about it. They weren't as good as Slayer, but they had the, they, they tried to have the same elements of evil and death and, and in some cases, Satan in their, in their lyrics and in their music, but they, they, they couldn't pull it off to me, in my opinion, as well as Slayer. Oddly enough, Gary Holt would later on join Slayer. So, you know, Bonded by Blood, got, I mean, there's some cool songs on there. I really like Piranha. I mean, I, I love that song, but it never really just, it never sucked me in that, that particular album. The one song that did get me to, to kind of get more into Exodus was the Toxic Waltz that came out a few years later. That was a, that was a cool song. You know, at that time, you, you, there was a little bit of, you know, leaning towards because of Anthrax, you were leaning towards a little bit of that rap metal that was coming out and not to say that Toxic Waltz is, is a rap song but you could sense there was a little bit of more groove to it there's a little bit more rhythm to the song as opposed to you know straight up thrash yeah I mean I think things definitely changed when Steve Souza joined the band um, he joined with in 1987 with uh, Pleasures of the Flesh um, so the, unfortunately that was just not a great album not not well reviewed um it, it seemed like they you know they lost one of their their primary songwriters early on cuz i mean Kirk Hammett had left the band um then they lost their vocalist they're changing things up well they fired their vocalist but that's neither here nor there um so they they're changing things up and they did they didn't really quite it was like starting fresh you know and then 1989 rolls around with Fabulous Disaster, and it's a much more diverse album. The songwriting is much better. It's much more mature. Um, but they're they're definitely an up-and-down band because Impact is Imminent in 1990 it was just an absolute critical failure. Um, th- so th- they're just not very consistent. Uh, Force of Habit was the final album before they reunited in 1997 after breaking up, though with a different lineup. They brought Paul Bailoff back uh, on vocals, but they didn't record anything with that lineup. Um, so this is more of a groove metal album. This is a band that, that started very strong with their first release, but never really, really quite measured up to what they, they first came out with. To, to be considered you know, the, the next big four or to be considered part of the big five, I really never understood why they were considered that because I, their music was so up and down in terms of how good or bad it was. And that, that was the thing that I'm like, well, if, if a band is that inconsistent, how can you consider them to be so good? But a lot of it had to do with all goes back to that first album, Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, again, I never got into them per se because there was there was something I, I don't even want to. I don't know. I can't even describe it. It's like it wasn't too extreme. It wasn't. Maybe it was too thrashy. I mean, because it, it was really pure thrash. And I don't know. It, it was one of those things where I just never. There was something about it that I never got into it. I don't know if it's if it's Steve Souza's weird voice. Or Paul Bailoff's whining. I don't know. I, I I don't know what it is. But that was one of those things that really kind of threw me off. And I never got deeply into that band. 
Yeah, same here. I, it's never been one that really uh, drew me in, but there's no denying the impact that that first album had. Mm-hmm. All right, so the next album we're going to talk about, or sorry, so the next band that we're going to talk about is Overkill. Uh, now, we recently did an episode where we talked about Under the Influence and Years of Decay, so ba- make sure to check that out, episode out. Um, but uh, this is a band that came from New Jersey, so the other side of America, um, 1980 formed and then came out with their first album in 1985 with Feel the Fire. Uh, this was this was a positively reviewed album, but it never really got a lot of attention. Uh, the next album that came out, Taking Over, in 1987, uh, found more of their footing. However, this was the last album to feature their original drummer, Rat Skates. Uh, now, you said recently that you watched a documentary with Rat Skates. Is that correct? Yes. It's a really cool documentary. Uh, it was on Amazon Prime. I want to try to remember the name of the, of the the movie, but it's it you know Ratskates literally put together a movie about the beginnings of Overkill and and the New York thrash scene. It's it the movie's called Born in the Basement. You can see it on Amazon Prime. It's really cool. It goes over a lot of the 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 scene in New York. Kind of you know slowly references things about Metallica and, and thrashing and, and different bands and touring and all that. And it goes into their signing with Atlantic and, and doing taking over. And it kind of ends there during the tour, but it's really interesting. The, the, the beginnings of overkill and how they started from a punk band with a really foul name and then turning into overkill and finding their niche with, with Bobby Blitz Ellsworth as their vocalist. I like Feel the Fire. Feel the Fire was good enough that they got signed to a ma- you know a major label or major distribution, I guess you could put it that way. So they they got you know I think a lot of it had to do with Johnny Z and the relationship that he came up with 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 Megaforce and Atlantic because they had that relationship. Megaforce brought Testament to Atlantic, brought Overkill. Um, they tried, I guess they tried to bring. Um, Anthrax, but Anthrax ended up getting signed to Island Records. So, you know, Megaforce had a had a good rep of bringing some good bands to to, to the major labels. All right. So the next couple albums that came out uh, were the last to feature Bobby Gustafson. Um, so we we discussed more of this on on the other episode, like I said. So I don't want to go into too much detail here. Uh, but basically, they kind of found more of their footing. Uh, things you know, we're kind of going sour with Bobby and, uh, you know, the last album that came out, uh, years of decay in 1989 really shows off a lot more exploration. So it's, it's a really good album. Um, then we go into 1991. So nineties, things are changing. They brought on two guitarists to replace Bobby. And that was Merritt Gant and Rob Canavino. Uh, the changed two guitarists really changed uh, quite a bit for them. Uh, and, you know, they they kind of doubled down on the thrash sound while others were departing at this point. Uh, but but they would go on to kind of change that because with 1993's I Hear Black, they brought in more groove elements. Uh, this also, re- they replaced uh, Tom Malaire with Sid Falk. So some changes were on the horizon. Horoscope is an awesome album. I love that album. 
being in the '90s, I mean, coming out the same year as Metallica's Black album, it, 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 it to me, it solidified the fact that metal and thrash metal was still here. But there was definitely the changing of the guard when it came to to grunge and all that stuff. It, to me, it 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 seems more that these bands lost their way because they were they were spooked by by grunge they were like oh shit we need to do something and if we don't do something now we're going to be left behind and all of them not all a majority of them just didn't know how to they they forgot how to write a good song and they thought that they were writing a good song but in reality they weren't horoscope was a good album but like you said i hear black um it's it's definitely not the same as horoscope and you had mentioned uh, Tim Miller. Tim Miller replaced Skid, uh, Sid Falk, and um, Sid, Sid was the, d- the drummer on on Under the Influence, The Years of Decay, and Horoscope. And he's a great drummer. I I loved what he did. Tim but Tim Miller is just as good. I mean, he's he's pretty damn badass, if you ask me. The the our next few albums: WFO, uh, The Killing Kind, uh, From the Underground Below, Necroshine. They had really departed a, a bit from the typical thrash sound that really defines Overkill. And even now in their modern albums, they're they're very thrash. Um, but they changed things up. They added more groove elements because groove metal was becoming a big thing. Um, you know, that's going to happen with lineup changes regardless. When, when band members change, the viewpoints change. So they're going to bring in a different perspective again, uh, incorporating groove metal in, in, uh, the killing kind. There was also some, some hardcore that was going on and bringing in Joe Como at that point, because they replaced the previous two guitarists again in 1996. So bring in Sebastian Marino and Joe Como, Joe Como was a singer and he actually started providing backing vocals. So another real change to their style. Um, it wasn't until 1999. I mean, they, they this was the last album to feature that lineup as well. So things were, were just, you know, in flux at this point. You know, from from every three years, it seemed like something big was, was happening. Some big change in their lineup. If, if you ask me, I'd rather see a band go from thrash metal to groove metal than from thrash metal to grunge rock, you know? Oh, I, I agree so, with you there. You know, yeah. if, 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 they, if they were able to find a way to write groove metal songs that were successful, you, there, there wouldn't be any question as to how good Overkill is. But they weren't able to really adopt it. You know, and that's because Dee Dee and Bobby are the main songwriters. So their heart is in thrash. So when they try, you know, when they have the influence from the new guys coming in, they're they're trying to blend that and it, it blend it in and it just doesn't completely mix. And mm-hmm. and it sometimes it worked and sometimes it did it. I mean, they had some good songs, one or two per album. And as as good as that may or may not be you you want three or four or five you don't want just one or two you don't want to buy a whole album for one song or two songs you, yeah. you want three or four or five you want a side 
you know, and, and that's what was missing from their, from, from them. I mean, I like the song Necroshine, you know, there's, there's a song on, on Killing Kind that I like, but you know, it's, it's not enough. And so for me, I lost Overkill in, in, in the nineties. They were just off my radar completely. The last thing I knew about Overkill was WFO. And then after that, I didn't, I never knew. I, I always thought that the album from, from the underground below was like a bootleg or something because I'm like, what is this? You know, because it was <laughs> such a small label. So I'm like, man, this label sucks. So, you know, they're, they're not on anything. This, this is, this is bullshit. This is a bootleg. You know, this is one of those, um, what was that? Uh, Cleopatra records <laughs> that you would see, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and I didn't think anything of it, but then Necroshine came out, you know, a couple years later and then, you know, they kept releasing albums and they just kept trying and trying and trying, but it was only one or two here and there. So they kind of never really grabbed me, but since 2000 they or 2010, they've been spot on. Yeah. And that, that's, that's definitely a trend that we'll talk about in the next episode is, is some of these bands actually managed to come back. They went back to their roots. Like I said, with creator earlier, and really came back with a vengeance in a way and 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 overkill is definitely one of them all right so the next band that we're going to go in depth on and pretty much the last one we're going to go in real depth on is is testament um you can't talk about thrash without talking about testament uh legacy we talked a little bit about during our episode where we talked about the the new order and practice what you preach uh but you know, make sure to go back and check out that episode because uh, we did do a, a album comparison between those two. Uh, but the legacy, most of the lyrics were written by Steve Souza, who was in Exodus. We talked about a little bit earlier, um, so a little bit different than what would be coming up because you've got uh, Chuck Billy coming in and singing someone else's lyrics. It wasn't until the New Order came out, and even though the legacy was a big hit. Uh, it wasn't until the new order came out that that they really became testament. Um, this is this is often considered like their best, best of the best, by a lot of uh, you know pure thrash people. Um, nineteen eighty eight release, and then nineteen eighty nine they released practice what you preach. Um, this is where they kind of started started exploring because. You've already reached the the late not 80s. We're entering the 90s at this point. A lot of the bands are already doing this, and three albums in, they're already kind of having to experience that themselves. I I, I really really enjoy Testament. Um, when we were doing the episode for New Order versus Practice What You Preach, it's when I discovered that the band was actually known as the Legacy. They got signed as the Legacy or legacy. I can't remember which one it was. And then they had to change their name because it was already a, a band with that name. And so they picked Testament and they just called the album, the legacy. Um, so that was last minute. So there was a lot, you know, between changing singers and changing the band name, a lot of stuff happened to them. It's amazing that they were able to, um, come out of it virtually unscathed when it, when it comes to that. So the legacy had, Everything with Steve Souza, and, and you could tell it was a completely different album when the New Order comes out. They're just, they're just two different albums. Both thrash, but the, there was a little bit, I would say there was a little bit more groove, a little bit more rhythm in 
the New Order. And I think a lot of that had, there was some influence from Metallica in there somewhere or in, and Megadeth because there was, there was a little bit more melody. That's the word I'm looking for, melody. Um, mm-hmm. And even though there was some, there was some good, you know, some good songs that had some, a lot, some melody on the first album, but you, you think about a song like Over the Wall, which was a big hit for them, but it, that is pure thrash beginning to end. But then you have a song like, you know, um, Alone in the Dark. That's very melodic. I like that song a lot. And I think Chuck Billy does a better version of Alone in the Dark than uh, Steve Souza does. And I've heard Steve Souza's version and I've heard Steve Souza re-record it. So, you know, it's... But I like Chuck Billy's version better just because I like the production on a new one, but Chuck Billy sings it better to me. Testament was was really cool. I mean, Testament should have been bigger, but inner in, inner band turmoil kind of threw that for a loop, and and then the '90s, of course, threw everybody for a loop. So yeah, 1990 they release Souls of Black, uh, which is it, it's considered a pretty good album. I mean, a, a lot of I would say most fans really enjoy that album. Uh, however, there, it's kind of funny the band considers it to be very rushed because. What they were trying to do was get on the bill for the European Clash of Titans tour. And because of that, they needed to get out of the studio as soon as possible. And they they really felt like a lot of it was rushed. They recycled some 80s material that they had, rewrote it, rewrote the lyrics, um, you know, modernized it. And that was the result was Souls of Black. Then in 1992, they released The Ritual, which was kind of a turning point for the band. Uh, it They were kind of going in a different direction than uh, both Louis Clementi and Alex Skolnick really felt that they wanted to go. And this was the last of the original, you know, the the classic lineup of, of the band. Uh, so they would, you know, kind of depart from thrash metal more into heavy metal with this album. And that would continue into the 90s where uh, they released Low, where that was, that was a groove metal album. Um, you had John Tempesta and James Murphy replacing Louis Clementi and Alex Skolnick. And this, this was also the last album to, uh, to feature Greg Christian. So, uh, well, at least until 2008 when they, they released the formation of damnation. Um, but a lot of changes happening. You can see again in the nineties, uh, these bands really shifting and trying to kind of, uh, alter their sound to remain relevant. The nine again, the nineties, and, and this is what we're going to delve a little bit more into. The nineties were rough on metal bands, and 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 I think, <laughs> as much as you you mentioned, Low was a little bit more groove oriented, right? Mm-hmm. Low came out in ninety four. Um, Overkill, you said that I hear Black was a little bit more groove oriented. That came out in. 1993 what band made it huge in 1992 pantera pantera and what what style of music they're playing groove metal mm-hmm. a thrashy groove metal but a groove metal nonetheless and to me if you're if that's not you you can't go backwards and be and become that that was all due to dimebag Dimebag had that groove built into his playing. Yep. And you know, some someone like uh, 
Alex Skolnick. That's not him. That's not Dave Mustaine. That's not anybody that was really a thrash guy. That you know that that's what Overkill tried to get when they got those two guitar players. But in essence, even then, you know, when, when they did Horoscope and they had those two guitar players, they, they, there was a little bit of groove to it, but it wasn't their style. The songs were, were being written by Bobby and by Dee Dee, so that wasn't their style. So you can't really go backwards. And and I think that's Pantera's success hurt those bands because everyone was trying to emulate Pantera. And unless you're Dimebag, you can't emulate Pantera. That's how unique Dimebag was. You know, no, for sure. I mean, to to essentially with, without really knowing knowingly doing it, he made groove that was it was almost danceable to some degree because it was such you know the head bop and 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 you, it could make your body move even though it was fast and, and thrashy but there was something that's what made Dimebag so unique and, and Pantera overall no one could emulate it no one ever emulated it and no one ever did a good version of it you know that that's the amazing thing about it well they kind of uh learned that they couldn't emulate it because their next album was more of a departure into death metal. Um, they brought on Gene Hoagland to replace John Tempesta, and James Murphy didn't appear on this album either. So they released Demonic in 1997. Uh, we talked a bit about it on one of our other episodes, and I'm struggling to remember which one, uh, but I remember you don't care for this album. I don't like Demonic at all. I, I, there's nothing that's appealing to me about it. The Gathering, there's a little bit more, but Demonic mm, does nothing does nothing for me. What I think is important about this album, though, is that because Chuck Billy was experimenting with death vocals, we do get The Gathering, which has... It's, it's a mixture. He brings back his original thrash vocals, uh, but mixes it with death to really, I think, great effect and he's still doing that to this day like uh the the uh what's the the witch song that just came out that i love night of the witch Uh, night of the witch he's he's doing some deathy vocals in there and but he's also doing his traditional thrash and it's it's really i think an important point in the band's history however the album itself is is not the best Uh, i like it uh, because i'm you know a death metal guy but yeah it's it's not it's not testament per se. Uh, the gathering, like we said, kind of mixes those interesting point here, Dave Lombardo on drums. So he had already left Slayer at this point and, uh, actually appeared as drummer on this album. And James Murphy returned, uh, to, uh, to play along with Steve Giorgio. What's funny about the, 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 connection here on these two albums with death metal is that gene hoagland steve DiGiorgio, and james murphy were all members of death at one point so so a definite connection to death metal the six degrees of separation from from chuck schuldiner so that that's again you know it's weird you know there's different guitar players that have that six degrees of separation <laughs> but oh yeah i you know Dave Lombardo is a thrash metal drumming whore. That's what he is. He was, he, you know, he was supposed to join Megadeth at one point uh, and realized that they were just too wasted for him. Um, so that that tells you that you know uh, he he's made his own band, Grip Inc. 
after he left Slayer, uh, which was pretty good. That first album was pretty good. You know, had had a little bit of elements of industrial as well as thrash. So that was pretty interesting. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you know, Dave is, is, is a legend. I mean, and so joining, joining Testament for an album, you know, was only logical, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, it was a blip on the radar, but it was a good blip. Yeah. For Testament, every, everything that they've done since they re, basically re-energized themselves in the late 2000s has been spot on, you know, for the most part. Um, since the formation of Damnation and on forward, they've, they've really found their niche, much like Overkill. Yeah, like a lot of these bands, honestly. So there, there were a few others that we, we want to mention, but maybe not go into his tremendous amount of detail. Um, Death Angel appeared in 1982. Uh, they, they broke up in 1991 due to an injury from their drummer. Um, so their career kind of got derailed by, you know, an, an incident that happened outside of their control. And they, they just were kind of disillusioned with things. So they, they really missed the nineties as a whole, uh, but came back in 2001 with their career. Uh, Flotsam and Jetsam, an important band in the grand scheme of things, because one of the the big four uh, actually plucked their their replacement bassist in Jason Newstead, uh, replacing uh, Cliff Burton after his passing uh, from or for Metallica. So their first album was the only f- one to feature Jason Newstead, uh, but another band from uh, you know kind of the the West Coast. And uh, I'm not super familiar with them. Are you more familiar with them than I am? With Flotsam? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I actually didn't pick up on Flotsam until after Jason News had left. Um, mm, gotcha. And I, you know, they, they had gotten signed to a, a, a major label, but the, they became more straightforward heavy metal rather than uh, thrash. So there was a lot of changes after Jason left. And, you know, the first album, Doomsday for the Deceiver, is, is, is a thrash metal classic. Um, but then after that, they, they changed their style and, and they they were more straightforward heavy metal. And, and then after that, they turned into like a hard rock band. And it wasn't until like the last few albums that they actually realized who they were and got back to their roots of playing thrash and, and, wow. and, and hard heavy metal. So it, it's... Another band that, you know, went full circle, you know, after all sorts of turmoil. Gotcha. Another band, uh, X Hoarder, came out of uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, they're often credited as, as the guys that really started the groove metal scene. A lot of people have have a, a, a theory that, that uh, Pantera lifted their style from them. I don't necessarily agree, but they definitely, I mean, we saw them, uh, what, last year? And, yeah, last year. and, you know, they're definitely one of the, the bands that really started groove metal. So, I mean, but we've also seen from across the world, these bands all kind of starting things at the same time. And that's a, that's an interesting point to bring up is that you've got bands in Germany that are, that are being influenced by the same people and coming up with music that's very similar you know, referencing creator from the big four, you know, no direct reference, but kind of coming up with very similar music. Um, then you've got Nuclear Assault from New York City, Hellstar from 
our town of Houston, Texas, and Iced Earth, uh, who we won't speak a whole lot of <laughs> right now, uh, from Tampa, Florida. Um, then you've got the big four of German thrash, which I mentioned earlier, uh, Creator being one of them, as well as Sodom, uh, Destruction, and Tankard. Um, I'm not as familiar with those bands as I am with with Creator. I grew up as a big fan of Creator, uh, but I do know Sodom a bit. Um, just more black metal than thrash early on. So, you know, they're they're part of the thrash scene and a huge part of the thrash scene in that part of the world. And then we've got the Canadian thrash scene, which with Annihilator, Anvil, Exciter, Razor, and Voivod. You know what's funny about the Canadian thrash scene is that I don't know what where anyone gets off saying that Anvil's thrash because they they weren't thrashy to me whatsoever, but they apparently they were very influential. I had heard about them, I had heard about metal on metal, and I never heard it, got into it or or anything until I saw the movie <laughs> a few years back. Yeah, that that movie really brought attention to them. I think a lot of people really, to this point, really don't even know who they are. Yeah, I mean, I knew who they were, and I had heard of them, but I hadn't I hadn't seen their records anywhere, so I didn't I couldn't buy them, you know. And I wasn't into doing the mail order records and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know, like where you could just send away your self self addressed stamped envelope and send ten dollars and we'll send you a record back. I wasn't into that. Um, and I guess that had a lot to do with the fact that they were from Canada. But, you know, I, I had heard about them and through the magazines that I was, you know, Circus and Hit Parader and stuff like that, but never really got into them. Um, Annihilator's name was around, but they didn't release anything till late 80s. Um, Exciter, out of all these bands, I had heard of Voivod, Exciter, and Anvil the most. Anvil, I couldn't find anywhere. Voivod was... Uh, considered, you know, thrash, progressive, almost. Exciter made a name for themselves in in New, the New York area because they got a, a a deal with, I believe it was Combat, and so Combat was was distributing stuff, you know, through the the New York area, and so on. Their album Unveiling the Wicked got some, you know, local New York radio play on on WSOU, which was a South Orange, New Jersey college radio station big even to this day with playing metal and they got a little bit of play on um, on the heavy metal from hell show i used to listen to so that album did well for them and then i went backwards and i picked up you know uh long live the loud violence and force and and those those were good albums and good songs so i got into exciter i never got into the early early stuff but that that Long Live the Loud and Unveiling the Wicked period, I was into that period. That was basically middle middle to late 80s. Gosh, yeah, there's a lot of these bands I feel like I need to explore more. Um, you know, like like I said, we saw Exorder. Uh, Death Angel I'm moderately familiar with, and Hellstar I've heard because, you know, they're a Houston band. Um, but I saw, yeah. I saw Hellstar open for Queensryche. <laughs> Oh wow, that's cool. So so basically, uh, I saw Hellstar open for Queensrÿche. You and I saw X Hoarder together, and I saw Death Angel open up for. It was either Testament or Anthrax, one of the two. T- Death Angel is a pure thrash. I mean, that, mm-hmm. they they were thrash from beginning to end on that show, 
Exhorter, the, the, here's the cool thing about Exhorter, or a, a unique little story um, that came out recently. The singer temporarily left his band, Exhorter, and they brought in Phil Anselmo. And when he went to sing, you know, Phil was doing Pantera, but he was doing, you know, 80s glam Pantera. And they had him sing in the style of the the singer for Exhorter that had just basically, I think it was a temporary leave. He was filling in temporarily. They had him sing no like that. To, I'm sorry? Fill in, he was filling in? Yeah, he was filling in. Phil Anselmo. So, <laughs> <laughs> Phil. So he goes back to Dimebag and to, to Vinny, and he says, I'm going to sing like this. And history, you know, we get Cowboys from Hell, and it's all over from there. So that's, the, and that story came from the guitar player of Exhorter, saying that that's how he influenced or they influenced Phil to become a different singer. So that's, that's an interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting tidbit. All right, so that kind of takes us back into the big four, and we want to catch up with where they are at this point. Uh, We've reached the 90s, and uh, we talked about at the very end of the episode last week uh, where Metallica has reached or released the Black Album in 1991. This is is a monumental change and a shift for all these bands. Uh, Seeing the guys at the top of the pyramid... Uh, changed their style a little bit. I think shook everyone to a degree, and the this is more of a heavy metal release than than a thrash album by any means. Uh, there's more exploration. It's a heavy album. Uh, this is this is it has mass crossover appeal. Uh, guys, girls, dogs, cats, everyone <laughs> likes it. Um, uh, this. Spends four weeks on the Billboard 200, reaches 16 times platinum, maybe more. I don't know at this point, but that's, you know, that was in 2012, I think, was 16 times platinum. Um, this is big. This is a change. No, to, to see an album of that magnitude, and it was, four, it was four weeks in number one, and it stayed on the Billboard 200 as, you know, as a whole, as an album by itself, for almost, uh, I want to say almost three years. I mean, that's how much it was selling. Um, you know, four weeks at number one at that time, especially when SoundScan started, which is, they're, they're the number one selling album of the SoundScan era. Ever since that started, bands didn't stay at number one or artists didn't stay at number one for very long. Two weeks was, was, was uh, you had a foothold at that point. So for this album to be there for four weeks, that tells you how much that was selling because the charts changed when the sound scan era started. It completely went to physical album sales that were actually calculated or calculable in, in that regards because before it was like, oh yeah, it was a list, you know, give me your top 20, 20 albums in your store and it was handwritten list. And so they compiled that list, and that's how they determined who was number one. But they never had official album sales because, you know, albums in the 70s and 80s really didn't have UPC labels. It wasn't until the UPC label came out and then they started doing electronically that all of a sudden sound, the SoundScan era changed everything for album sales. 
So this real this shift really changed a lot of things, and they were able to play with a wider variety of musicians. Uh, I mean, they were able to to play with Guns N' Roses on a bill. They were supposed to play with Alice in Chains, but that didn't work out due to the issues within that band. Uh, but I mean, th- a lot changed. Uh, in 1996 and 1997, they released Load and Reload. Uh, that would be the last albums of the decade, uh, aside from Garage Incorporated, which was a cover album. Um, but this was really for a further departure. I mean, this is not these albums were not thrash. Um, they were alternative metal, country rock, hard rock, um, heavy and well produced, but very different. Uh, Reload was also the last major album to feature Jason Newstead. He did appear on Garage Inc. and S&M afterwards, but uh, as far as the official releases, the, the uh, studio releases, uh, this was his last with the band. Load and Reload are good for what they are. You know, they're very good alternative metal albums, put mm-hmm. it that way. They're very good. You know, and and individually, there's certain elements on there that are just amazingly good. You know, they still play Fuel to this day in their set. Um, they still add, you know, the memory remains uh, from from Reload. Um, I think they play more songs from Reload than they do from Load. But the the, the two albums that came out in '96, '97, they were supposed to be one album. They split it in half. They did, you know, they basically toured for three years on this thing between the two the two album releases. It was a very interesting time for Metallica. They were on top of the world, you know, from, you know, they, they headlined Woodstock 94 going into the making of the Load album. They make Load. They, they, they don't even, I don't even think they, they tour much for for load so much as they do a lot of promotion for it and then when reload comes out is when they go on a full-blown tour they're all over the place i mean they're on top of the world and yes that between the black album and load and reload changed the game for everybody when it came to what they can what, what they think that they can do because there's a there's a difference between being on top of the your game and being on top of the world and being able to make the shift and the change you want to make and everybody else reacting to it. And mm-hmm. that's what everybody else did. They reacted like, "Oh shit. Metallica just changed the game on us. Fuck, we got to we got to do something." You know, Anthrax, All right, let's fire Joey. We got to get John, you know. Megadeth had just gained gotten their their classic album uh, classic lineup together they had a really you know their magnum opus as you talked about in 1990 it was it came out a year before the black album but even they reacted when they made the next album countdown to extinction that was like a a a different version of the black album you know it was megadeth's version of the black album was it was much more accessible you know oh yeah and and then huge move towards accessibility right and slayer didn't come out with an album until 1994 and it was Slayer, but it was it was trying to be a little bit more groovy. You know, again, that Pantera influence. They wanted to be more groovy. It was okay, but it, it wasn't Pantera's last three albums. So <laughs> Yeah. So Megadeth, like you said, releases Countdown to Extinction in nineteen ninety two. Um 
so yeah, it's it's definitely a move towards more accessibility. Uh, 1994, they release Euthanasia. So this is this is a further departure from what they did with Counter, Countdown to Extinction into really a heavy metal vibe. It's not a it's not a thrash album. Um, what's funny is what's considered to be the classic lineup of Megadeth. I'm not really a big fan of these albums. Uh, Countdown to Extinction, I love. It's great, it, but I don't like it as much as the early thrash stuff. Uh, but Euthanasia, Cryptic Writings, I, I'm just not that big of a fan of. Cryptic Writings was the last album to feature Nick, Nick Menza, uh, but still essentially these four and, and Rust and Peace are the classic lineup. Um, and then Risk. Risk is a huge change, and it's not it's not viewed very positively by fans of Megadeth. Um I I like a couple songs on it because they're pretty good songs to be honest, but it's not a Megadeth album and it should never have been have called a Megadeth album. It, it um, was a risk not worth taking. It, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is a hard rock album, uh, not even a metal, just a hard rock album. <laughs> terrible. But you know, moving on to to Anthrax, Anthrax. I think made the wisest decision that they could have, um, you know, they had already had a different sound with, with Joey than the other guys. Uh, Joey brought on more of a traditional heavy metal vocal skill set. Um, but that, I don't think that would have flown in the 1990s, to be honest. I think John Bush was the perfect choice for the direction they needed to go. And when they released 1993's sound of white noise, that was just a fantastic album. I, I, that's my favorite John era album. And when I heard that they had picked John Bush to be their singer, I was excited. I mean, not that I disliked Joey, but you know what? Joey got himself fired for whatever it was worth at the time. So mm-hmm. now, you know, much like, well, David, David Lee Roth got fired from Van Halen. Who's going to be their singer? Oh, Sammy Hagar. Oh, that's kind of weird. It's going to be called Van Hagar now. You know, all these weird things, but it worked. And when John joined Anthrax, it worked. He is a great singer, and he is a heavy metal singer. I mean, if there's anybody, when you sit there and say, who's a heavy metal singer, you have, you know, Rob is the metal god, okay, because he's just the pipes that he has. Ronnie James Dio and and... Bruce Dickinson, but when you think about the kind of you know metal, almost thrashy, Armored Saint is not necessarily thrash, but they're not your Iron Maiden kind of heavy metal. They're a little bit harder than Maiden, a little bit less thrash than thrash bands. His voice is the perfect voice for that style of metal. And so when he joined Anthrax, I was so excited. When the album came out and I heard the single for Only, I was taken aback a little bit but then I realized, man, this has got a really cool groove to it. You know, this has got some good stuff. It was a little more accessible than, say, you know, Among the Living or or Be All End All. But it was definitely really good. And then I heard Pottersfield. And that was a fast and thrashy kind of song. But at the same time, the vocals weren't. The 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 music the music the music the music behind <laughs> the music <laughs> the the music behind John's vocals was thrashy, but his vo- his singing was kind of just almost 
almost in a spoken word style of singing to, to some degree, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then, but his, he's got such a cool, it's not, it's not a scream, but it's a yell. He I has love, a rasp to his voice. Yeah, there's a rasp to his he voice. He has that, power. Yes. It's, it's just, a, it's such a, such a good voice. And I was so happy to meet him when I did a few years ago. They, they had, you know, when, when Sound of White Noise came out, it was like, wow, okay, so they're they're going to do it. They're going to be successful. And they it for what it was worth, the album was successful. It was unfortunate that the album after that when when it was Stomp 442, they didn't get the same kind of push that Sound of White Noise had. And there's some good stuff on that album. I mean, I I, you know, I like it. It's not great, but it's not horrible that you're going to sit there and say oh i need to drop this band they, it was it was a much better album than that and i think if there was a little bit better push on it and it was because i think there was more background record company turmoil than there was band or turmoil like that so they there was some changes in employment and in personnel at, at the record company and so the backing that the album had just disappeared and that was that's a, that's that's a sad thing because it's a pretty decent album yeah, I, th- I think it's really the same for both the albums. I think Volume Eight, which came out in nineteen ninety eight, is is not a great album. I mean, it's it's pretty weak as far as the overall uh, songwriting. But they also really didn't get any push from their record company, and th- that would change with uh, We Come for You All. Uh, but I kind of want to more talk about that on the next episode mm-hmm. because it's it's you know into the two thousands so. Um, moving on to Slayer, 1994, like you mentioned, Divine Intervention. Uh, this is the first album to feature Paul Bostoff. Uh, he replaced Dave Lombardo, who was fired from the band. Um, but Slayer stuck to their guns at this point. Uh, they didn't want to change styles away from what they were doing. They stayed with Thrash, um, but that really did change with 1996 Undisputed Attitude. Uh, they brought in more of a hardcore punk vibe. And then Diabolus and Musica in 1998. To me, uh, it's the worst th- the worst Slayer album. Um, even more, I, I don't like God Hates Us All, um, but I like this one less. It's like a new metal, groove metal album. Um, and I, I read an interview with uh, with Kerry King and I was laughing so hard he called it the turbo of their catalog <laughs> don't forget Undisputed Attitude is a covers album and that's why it has that punk feel to it mm-hmm. uh, so yeah. there, there's nothing original on Undisputed Attitude and that's where when you see something like that where you see Megadeth and and Metallica and Anthrax kind of have all similar influences you know, basically circling around the new wave of British heavy metal Slayer's main influences, especially by when you see what what was on Undisputed Attitude, is more punk, more hardcore mm-hmm. punk. So you can see that there, that's the biggest difference. And because of that influence in general, they are less apt to want to bother with changing styles, which is weird because then they come out with Diabolus and Musica and it's like, oh, let's do new metal. It works for Korn. Why can't we do it? Well, hell, it works for Corn because Corn's that kind of band. You're not that band. You're you're Rain and Blood Slayer. Well, part of that also was the songwriting was affected by their 
their just dissatisfied attitude towards what was going on in music. Uh, Kerry King said he was just really disgusted with music at that time. And, uh, and that kind of affected the way that the songs were written. See, but you would think they would have been more pissed off and they would have wrote, they would have written a, a more pissed off rain and blood version, <laughs> something like that, but it didn't you come out think. that way. You would think it didn't yeah. come out that way. All right, so that really wraps things up for the 90s. On the next episode, we're going to be more talking about bands that started in the 90s and where they they are basically up till this point. Uh, there's not as much of a huge push of thrash you know, from that point, but there's still some really significant stuff that came out. And then we're going to talk about where the, the uh, big four ended up and that resurgence that we talked about of, of thrash metal from the original guys really finding their roots again and bringing out some really fantastic albums. All right, so that brings us to the big four for tonight. And the big four for tonight is the big four non-big four thrash albums. <laughs> so say that too many times and, and uh, have a couple beers and you'll see what you sound like. Um, <laughs> so I started the other night. Why don't you go ahead and you give me your big four non-big four thrash albums. All right, so I'm going to pick... Uh, I've got... Two or one band. Uh, before we start this, I've got one band that I've got two albums on there. Is that okay, or do you want me to pick a different one? Because I can pick a different one. No, that's fine. I don't care. Okay, I I, I did it. With, I mean, I thought we should do it with the big four that way yeah, specifically. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, all right. So for my number four, I've got a big one with uh, to Megatherian with with uh, Celtic Frost. Uh, to me, this. You know, it, it's one of those borderline thrash albums, but I think it's such an important one in the genre of thrash, and it's just such a great album in general that I, I really wanted to have it on this list. I, I kind of had a, a struggle with it, but I, I stuck to albums, like actual albums instead of EPs. So um, I do think the EPs that came before it are really a little better, um, but this this, you know, it's an album. So that's that's the difference. Um, for my number three is Creator Coma of Souls. Um, this blew my mind. I I love this album so much, and I was so disappointed when they changed their styles afterward because it just, you know, it, it's like one of your favorite bands is almost like a member of the family in a way. And when they depart styles so drastically, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, but this was the album that I held on to for a long time because I just loved it so much. And then, um, for number two, I've got Testament, the new order. I think it's just such an important album and Testament. Uh, there, I think there are albums. I probably, uh, enjoy songs from more than this album, but this is the best cohesive album from Testament. And that's what made me pick it over, say, some of the modern stuff that I really, really like, uh, but I don't like it as a whole as much as this this album is just so well-crafted. And then for my number one, I've got, again, Creator with Violent Revolution. So when they came back uh, fr- from their you know exploratory period, uh, Violent Revolution is, is an incredible album. Uh, I was so happy. I mean, that's, that's a factor of why this is my number one, was 
to hear the band that you felt like you kind of lost return to form and and just blow you away with an amazing album that's like a, that's a feeling you can't like capture twice so uh i had to pick it because it not only is an amazing album but uh it had such an impact that i i really felt so uh that's uh, i know i picked two two from the same band but i had to on this one hey if if that's the way you feel and you feel that those are the the, the big four of the non-big four then you know what so be it you know i know that they're they're good albums so on the flip side, I picked four completely different albums from three different bands. <laughs> nice. One, one band is duplicated, but it's a different album. All right, so my number four is Overkill's Taking Over album. Overkill really dove into thrash, and that album was the beginning of, of their career when it came to thrash. Feel the Fire was was good, and it was had elements of thrash, Taking Over was just full-blown thrash, beginning to end. So I love that album. Um, the first thing that I really heard from Overkill and you know saw the video for uh, In Union We Stand, so it was really cool. Uh, number three, a band that I got to personally meet and had one of the craziest times in concert to see, Sepultura with Chaos AD. I went to see them on that tour Got to see him in a club very similar to the, the small club, like the like Warehouse Live that we go to. And by far the craziest show. It opened up with the song, uh, I believe it's Chaos AD, the first song. And that, that whole intro with the with the heartbeat coming in and then that that drum beat, you know, whatever. And when it goes into the guitars... I literally had to hold on to anything that I could because I got sucked up into a gigantic mosh pit. When I say gigantic, <laughs> it was the entire floor until everybody calmed down. That's amazing. I, I've never seen anything like it. It was outrageous. On a, it's, I hadn't, had never seen anything like that indoors. Outdoors, I've seen something even crazier than that. But indoors, I had never seen that many people at one time. It was the entire floor. And it was crazy. So Chaos AD is a great album. I love that album. My favorite album from Sepultura. Number two, Metal Church with their debut album, Metal Church. Just beginning to end to me, it's it's one of the finest albums in thrash. Um, it's just it's just good. I mean, it it, it it's beyond thrash because it, it has those elements of Metallica being outside the thrash box. So that's very similar in that regards. But Still, songs like Metal Church, um, Beyond the Black, Merciless Onslaught, you know, it, it's, you know, they even do a cover, a really cool cover of um, Highway Star from, from Deep Purple. So it's a really good album. And number one is an actual modern album from this band, Testament. And it is Dark Roots of the Earth. To me, that is testament at their finest i know you you prefer uh you know the the creation the new creations album and you even prefer brotherhood to snake more i really really got into dark roots of the earth and i think that's their finest work since they you know found themselves again i mean that's fair enough they, all the new albums i really think are great plus it has a really cool cover on the deluxe edition of power slave from iron maiden 
Nice. So, all right. We'll let them know what we're going to do in part three. All right. So like I said a little bit earlier, in part three, we're going to explore the 90s uh, bands that appeared that that uh, followed the second wave. And then we're also going to kind of go into where the thrash metal has gone from there and where the the big four ended up from the 90s or the end of the 90s up until now all right so make sure to tune in next week when we close out the three-part series on thrash metal and always remember turn it up to 11 see ya (laughs) 